Hello, welcome everybody. Welcome to Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children podcast, where we bridge conversations from parenting to child well-being and social justice, and provide resources and tools for parents connected to research that matters to us and to our community. I'm Dr. Sharita Butler-Barnes. And I'm Dr. Valerie Adams-Bass. Let's get started. Yes, so we have a guest with us today, and we're going to be talking about empowering Black and Brown girls and parents. We have Don Brown with us, CEO of Empower Her Institute. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. We're excited to have you here. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. Yeah. And I was also going to say, so I know I'm so excited. I can't hardly contain myself because me and Valerie both do research on Black girls. Uh-huh. And both of our work, we talk about empowerment of Black girls, creating safe spaces, the importance of having a healthy racial and gender identity, and just really doing a work around increasing the visibility of Black girls. And so just to see you out here doing your thing with Black girls, I think is really important. And then you're focusing on a important age group like middle school, middle school and high school girls, where we know some of the influences that are going on, some of the things that are happening and shaping who they are, their identity. And so we're happy to talk with you today about that. Absolutely. And as Sharita said, she and I are both developmental psychologists and much of our research and the academic realm focuses on black girls, middle and high school girls. And we are both mothers to black girls. So we have, right. we're invested as black women, black mothers and scholars who do research to support and uplift and really illuminate the experience of black girls. So again, Dawn, welcome. We want to let the audience know they pretty much know who we are, but we also want to let them know a little bit more about you, really as the CEO and president. President of Empower Her, right? It's Empower Her Institute with over 20 years of experience in nonprofit management and consulting. You come to us with that. And you're an advocate, a wonderful advocate for racial justice and eliminating gender bias, which really complements the research that we do well, which is why Sharita and I are exceptionally happy to have you Mm -hmm. here today. And we love the part that I love as someone who has recently been pushing my colleagues to let's turn our research into practice and policy. We love that you have led successful initiatives that have become California legislation and that you've also served on various advisory boards and think tanks that really help to illuminate and talk about and discuss and move forward the issues affecting Black women and girls. So again, welcome, Dawn. We just wanted our audience to know how wonderful an advocate you are for Black girls. Yes, thank you. This is, I always say, I eat, sleep, and breathe social justice. (laughs) Specifically, you know, racial justice and examining the intersection of race and gender. I'm a Black girl (laughs) and have been my whole life. Um, (laughs) Right? Right? (laughs) So it's extremely important to me that we are able to do the work that we do to support Black and Brown girls in LA County and creating those safe affinity spaces for them and really empowering them to reach their fullest potential. And we can't do that without breaking systemic barriers. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the race component comes in. And so what we always say is that we're working with our girls to help them in receiving the skills necessary, but also the access and resources in order to become college and career ready and ultimately break generational cycles of poverty. Yeah, absolutely. And so I want to ask if you already started 
really sort of giving us a teaser to empower. And what I want to ask you is two things. I've been asking this question because I think it gets a little buried in the discourse today. So if you could just tell us, give us your definition of racial justice so people can understand the framework from which you work. And then tell us a little bit more about the work that you do at Empower, because I'm hearing racial justice quite a bit in different spaces. But when people begin to elaborate on the work they do, there's not always an alignment. So could you just share with us as well as our audience what you mean, how you're defining racial justice, and then how that relates or tell us a little bit more about the work you do at Empower? So when we talk about racial and gender justice, there are three layers to this. You know, we started when we talked, we started initially talking about equality, and then we have conversations about equity. But ultimately, our goal is justice. And justice is for us, when we talk about racial justice, what we really are talking about is breaking down systemic barriers. We are talking about looking at the historical and systemic barriers that have impeded on uh, supporting Black uh, people, specifically Black girls, because that's who we serve, Mm -hmm. in reaching their fullest potential. And when we talk about justice, it means breaking those systems down and then eradicating them completely so that those barriers no longer exist and we are all on an even playing field. In order for that to happen, however, we don't just, and this is why we're not looking for equality. We're talking about the next step beyond that, the step beyond equity. Equity is about creating fair spaces and balancing the power. And so in the balancing of that power, that means giving people what they need. And what they need may not be, you may need 10% while someone else may need 50%, right? And when we talk about justice, we are making sure that everyone has gotten all that they need. And so they're getting that you know, whatever that level is that they need in order to everyone hit the same even playing field and eliminating any barriers that get in the way. So it's not just giving people skills, but also making sure that they have the resources and that may be financial and then also giving them the access Mm -hmm. in order to reach their fullest potential. Because we often want to support people in making sure they have the skills, but then they don't have the access. Right. And so that's what we talk about when we talk about racial justice is breaking down all of those barriers and then eradicating them so that they no longer exist for our girls. Mm -hmm. And so that we are all living on an equal playing field. And that takes because of the historic and systemic challenges. That's not something that can happen overnight. Right. Absolutely. Right. 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 There's right. a lot of sort of reparation that has to happen in order for that to exist. Sure. Absolutely. And so tell us likely that your program Empower does some of that reparation work, some of that restorative work and reparation. So tell us a little bit more about the work you do with your organization and the young ladies that you serve. Yeah. So Empower Her has been around for 20 years. We are celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. Congratulations. Good job. Keep it up. Keep it up. Go to distance. Yes. And we serve BIPOC girls. So we serve Black, Indigenous, people of color from middle school, from seventh grade through 12th grade. And what we do is we provide them with social emotional learning, mentoring, and skills based learning with an ultimate goal of helping them break generational cycles of poverty. And we believe that the best way to do so is through college and career readiness. And so what that looks like in practice is our core program 
is our in-school programs. We have a girls' academy and a leaders' academy. And those academies, based on their age, middle school and high school, we start with them in seventh grade and we work with them throughout 12th grade. So the curriculum gets more complicated and more challenging throughout. And what we're doing is we're the only nonprofit organization that does this in L.A. County. We are actually teaching them a social-emotional learning course that happens, that is fully integrated into the school day. So it's part of their school day and they get credit for it. And so they are learning everything from, and it happens throughout the year, it's once a week, and they're learning everything from how to manage our emotions to how to navigate workspaces and how to deal with microaggressions and mansplaining in the workspace. They're learning about financial literacy. They're learning about conflict resolution and healing, how to create healing circles, right? And so they're dealing with all of the things, the muck that we experience in being girls and being girls of color and being black girls in the world. That is what we do with our girls during the school day. And so that's the core of our program. And then there are multiple wraparound services from parenting support to emergency family services to case management that we provide in order to make sure they have all that they need and we're taking a holistic approach. And then in the summer, we have this awesome program that I love. It's the first and only and it's kind in the country that we created. And it is our social justice STEAM camp. Awesome. That sounds good. Tell us more about yeah. that. I have other questions, but I want to hear about that. <laughs> right. Let's hear yeah. <laughs> So we have a social justice STEAM initiative with our girls. And so in general, and so they're always exploring social justice issues and looking at STEAM and how they can utilize STEAM to address those issues. And with this camp, it's an intensive. So the first three weeks, we take our middle schoolers and they are trained as marine biologists. So they oh. learn marine scientists for three weeks. And what they're ultimately doing, they're staying on a college campus and they are studying with a black woman marine biologist, which there's less than 1% in the country. And they are actually in there studying the resiliency of marine ecology as it relates to the impact of climate change. And then they're comparing that to the resiliency and impact on marginalized communities. Hmm. And they learn coding, they learn artist activism, and they create these amazing projects that they create themselves that is fully student-led to express what the issue is and how they think what we need to do in order to solve that utilizing STEM. And then the last two weeks of that, we take our girls that middle schoolers who are mature enough and our younger high school girls, and they actually then begin to live on a research boat. So they take it to the next level with them. So they're staying on a research boat. They actually learn how to scuba dive and get their scuba diving certification. So you're talking about 11, 12, 13-year-old Black and Latina girls who are scuba divers, okay? And no one else is doing this. And they continue to explore this. Our goal is to see a new generation of marine biologists. And ultimately, with all of our work, and now high schoolers also are learning, getting paid internships, and we pay them above minimum wage at the same time in the summer. And so ultimately, what we want to see is this new generation of women who look like the communities in which they serve. Wow. Fantastic. That is like unbelievable. <laughs> I'm wondering. That is awesome. I have so many <laughs> questions that relate to my research, but right. I'm supposed to be here. That's amazing. But you mentioned, so all of that. And so I'm really excited about you saying a youth-led approach, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of what you use. What does that look like? Tell us more about this approach and how 
that empowers BIPOC girls. So when we talk about youth-led, we really believe that our young people, because that is who we're serving, they have to lead us into what they need. One of my biggest pet peeves is to hear people say, I want to be a voice for the voiceless. I'm a voice for the voiceless. Like nobody is voiceless. Step aside and give them the mic. Right. And so, you know, that's based in oppression when you say things like that. And so that's what we do. We step aside and give our girls the mic. They are equal decision makers at the table with us. And so we have girls who serve on our board of directors Mm. and they have equal voting and how we function as an organization. We ask their feedback in everything that we do. And when they are creating their projects, we don't tell them. We just say, there's a social justice. We want you to find something that's important to you. They figure it out. And then we take the high school girls and we have them mentor the middle school girls on working on the projects. So we give them the skills that they need as adults and we train them on those skills and explore those conversations with them. But then we step back and we give them the space and we serve as guides and not as the leaders anymore. They are our leaders. Wow. So it's not just you creating a program that we know that's beneficial for Black girls, but it's also having them have a seat at the table, but also making in the decision-making capacity as well, too. Yes, absolutely. And so you also mentioned this holistic view, right? This holistic perspective in working with Black girls and their families. How does the work that you do also support parents and help them support their daughters? So we just started to really launch our parenting component to this work because we realized during the pandemic and even before, just working with our girls, what was happening was we were working with them. We were helping them develop all these amazing skills. 100% of our middle schoolers, I should tell you, matriculate in the high school and 100% of our high schoolers graduate and are accepted into college. Mm -hmm. And so we were seeing those things happen. And then the parents were asking questions like, well, wait, my child, you know, one of the things that we teach is financial literacy. And so we start with middle school and they go up to high school. By the time they get in high school, they actually are learning about investments and we give them $100 to invest in their first stock, right? We teach them about generational wealth. And so the parents were like, wait, uh, my child is coming home talking about generational wealth and talking about how to buy a home. I don't know these things, right? <laughs> and so they started to ask us for you know, support. And then the pandemic hit And we started looking at, oh my gosh, there is real financial need that families are dealing with. And Mm -hmm. so we had to begin to put emergency funds into place to support our families to get through, right? And then we started to look at, wait, our girls are going to college. And what we were seeing, it was just on a conversation just before here where I was saying, I had one of my girls who got accepted to an Ivy League university. She got accepted to Stanford and her mom was afraid for her to go because she had never been away. So she said, you have to stay home and go to the community college. So she wasn't allowed to go, right? And then she wanted to study biology and her mom said, well, if you do real estate, we could become rich now. We could make money now versus you studying biology. So now this child is miserable studying real estate and going to a community college because she turned down Stanford, right? And we gave her a college scholarship so she could go. And so we were like, wait, we got to have some real conversations with our parents too, because while we're breaking down systems of oppression for our girls, They're also living in homes where trauma still exists, where trauma and systems of oppression have begun to impact us so deeply as adults that sometimes we, not purposely, but we pass that on to our children. And so we said we have to do some parenting classes. And so now we do quarterly parenting opportunities for our parents where they actually get to participate in workshops and classes that they say they want 
to support them. And we have conversations with our parents about what does it mean to release power to your child and to release the constraints on your child. And then also we actually this year will begin to in September, we are recruiting currently parents to serve as parent liaisons where they will get paid again above minimum wage to work with us and to recruit other parents and to help support in developing the program and also designing and facilitating it. Awesome. That's fantastic. I mean, you're doing a lot. And so I have a couple questions and what you were just saying about the parents. I mean, that's a whole nother episode, but I do want to say a couple things. And one thing is, you know, earlier you were talking about social emotional learning. You were using these words that are very familiar to us and describing for us what that looks like in your program. So I'm wondering how, based on what you just shared with the example of the student and now integrating student support, and as Sharita said, this wraparound approach to supporting Black girls. And I always say that I love Black children, but if you're going to work with Black children, you have to work with their families too, right? That's right. And so I do wonder how you help parents just to understand what it is you're doing or those buzzwords, because sometimes they're going to be going to the schools or receiving information from the schools, maybe not necessarily from you and not understanding how these terms translate and impact their lives or their children. Right. So, you know, you hear social emotional learning, social emotional learning. And if you ask the average parent, what is that? What would they tell you? They probably wouldn't know. Right. They have absolutely no idea. Right. Right. Absolutely no idea. Let's talk about that. How do you define or how are we going to talk about social emotional learning, particularly in the context of a program that is intentional about serving black girls? And so, you know, what is social emotional learning? What does that look like Mm -hmm. in your program? And then again, why was it important for you to center your program around Black girls? You know, I break that down into two words, right? Well, the first one is social, right? And so how do we work with other people in society? How do we work with other people? How do we develop relationships? And then the other part of that is the emotional component. How are we dealing with our internal? So it's the external and the internal. And the internal is those feelings and how do we navigate those things? How do we cope with those things and build resiliency? And most parents know what resiliency is. And so that's how we sort of break it down. And we say we're looking at the external and the internal and making sure that they have the skills to cope and deal with both. And so that's the easiest way that we break it down with them. And then we start giving them the list of the actual courses and topics that the girls learn because every four weeks is a new learning module. And so we start breaking those down for them so they understand. And we say like it gets more and more complicated as they get older and older. And so we grow with them. And so that's how the parents sort of understand it. So it's everything from how to deal with just being a teenage girl. And there's a lot that comes with that. And then being a black girl in the world, there's a lot that comes with that. There's another layer that comes into that. When our girls start with us, most of them are not on their period, but within the first year or so they are. And all of the hormones that come with that. And then navigating relationships outside. How do we communicate with one another and deal with conflict? And then how do you, when you get to high school and you start looking for jobs, go into a job setting and deal with someone and you know the information, but they go, oh, and you explained yourself quite well. And then they go, oh, well, what she's saying is when the, when the, when the, the man or the white, and I'm like, I don't need you to white explain for me. I don't need you to man explain for me. Right. <laughs> and so we teach them about that. How do you navigate those systems? And so that's how I explain it. I give them examples. I talk about the fact that when we talk about money, we don't just say, here's a budget, but we talk about what does it sound like in your household? What have you heard your parents say? When I grew up, I heard my parents say, I got to rob Peter to pay Paul. 
right? And so I thought that's how you paid bills. And it wasn't until my first financial advisor sat down with me and was like, what is wrong with you? You, you making six figures and you robbing Peter to pay Paul? Like, what is wrong with you? And then he was, and he was like, why are you paying late fees? You have the money. But it was because I didn't know differently. And so he had to teach me that. We want our girls to not get a 30 and not know that. So we're explaining it to them now. So that's what we mean when we talk about social emotional. It's the external and the internal. And how do you balance that so that you can live a healthy life, make healthy decisions, and really develop resiliency that is healthy and not based in trauma? Right. And I'm so glad that you just provided the definition for that because I don't know if you all know, but now social emotional learning is under attack in schools mm-hmm. now, right? in some spaces. Mm-hmm. So just for you, just sort of even explaining that and the importance of it, thank you for giving that definition and also just underscoring the importance of social emotional learning. And I was just going to echo what Sharita said and also to say healthy social emotional learning. Oh, so let's right. be clear. The example that you gave, Dawn, of Robin Peter to pay Paul that was, you know, coping, right? That was figure out right. what you need to do. So it's not necessarily that that was a bad thing in that moment at that time for your parents, but to know that there are other alternative ways when you don't have to be in that space That's and right. you're not managing trauma. And, you know, what our colleagues and some of the work that Sharita and I do sort of in the academic arena, we have, you know, those who are really looking more specifically at parent racial socialization, which is really navigating racial trauma, not just gender trauma or the everyday poverty trauma, but trauma that's associated with racism and racial encounters and coping daily. And then how do you have that conversation with your children, right? So we have colleagues who have interventions, you know, who are looking at the helping parents to become more comfortable addressing their trauma so they're not, so they're teaching their children how to navigate, but they're also not communicating that same level of trauma or not communicating with their children about those racial interactions. So I want to say that We know Black girls, we know the Black community in general to be resilient, but it's a heavy toll. And COVID-19 really Mm. showed what that looks like when it was exacerbated, right? So some colleagues and I, we wrote a paper about, you know, wearing a mask is not going to protect you from your history. Really talking about the long systemic structures that were impeding the progress and impacting the health and well-being of Black children and their families and what we need to do now, right? So it sounds like your program has been doing it for 20 years and it's really responsive. So wanting to to help parents to understand like if that was your coping or it is your coping because that's where you are we can acknowledge that and then decide and determine as parents or you can decide and determine as parents with support from an organization like empower her so that your children have alternative options right so that they don't have to repeat that cycle and so we again applaud you for just doing that and breaking it down you know because as Sharita said you know, each time we elevate these equity issues or these ways to address inequity, they come under attack. That's just the reality. Yeah, yeah. They yeah do. I think that one of the things that you said I want to just hone into quickly is, yes, when I talk to my parents, I say my mom did the right thing to do because it was a survival. She was operating out of survival, right? But we're working with our girls young enough that they don't have to operate from that perspective, right? So now we can help them build a different perspective and a different approach to doing this. And we got to keep in mind that 96% of the girls I serve live at or below the poverty level. 
They mm. all go to Title I schools. So we understand that. Your parents are making decisions out of trauma. And some of the decisions, the girls' decisions are out of trauma too because they've experienced their own trauma as well. And so what we want to do is shift that so that their resiliency is coming from a healthy place, like you just said, so that our parents are learning. I'm not here to judge the choices that you made around how you're paying your bills or things of that sort because you are doing exactly what you need to do. What we're doing is making sure that because we're working with them younger, we can give them a different approach. And the parents get that and they support that because they understand that it's not about judgment. It's simply about making sure that my child, we always want our child to do better than us. Right. 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 Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's what we will hope and we believe. And sometimes we just have to unpack our own you know, challenges to do that. And so we do want to ask you a couple questions, right? Because you're doing this, you're only in LA County and California. So we do wonder for those organizations who maybe came out of COVID and realized they needed to do more and are trying to figure out how to do more if they're serving Black girls or Black families or other children of color, what lessons do you share with those youth serving organizations who really don't want to just have a statement or value statement about serving Black children, Black girls who don't want to just have, you know, a vision, a mission or equity statement, but really want to do the work. What lessons can you share with other youth serving organizations that serve Black girls or Black children? You know, I just had a conversation with a white-led organization that serves Black girls. And the language that was being utilized in the space, um, and even with the Black women that were there as well, was not asset-based, right? And they were like, we're an asset-based organization. But what they were saying was like, well, you know, Black girls have become mean girls or they don't know how to dress. The language that was being used or even something like, we're trying to help them do better. Mm. I was like, well, that's not exactly the language in which we want to utilize. And so the first thing that I always say is one, make sure that your leadership And I understand that that may not be the executive director, but there are other leaders within your organization. Make sure that your leadership and your board really show the diversity and reflection of the community. Yes. Number one, that's the first thing, right? The worst thing is to be at a Black-led organization to have a whole white board, right? A Black-serving organization. Black-led, Black-serving. So the face face looks very different from the decision-making team, the board. Absolutely. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is to make sure that there's a diversity diversity there. And then the other part, and there's a reflection, not just a diversity, but a reflection of the community. The other part of that is to make sure that the population that you serve should have a seat at the table in the decision-making. You are not there to tell them what they need. You are there to listen. You have the access to create the services that they have requested. And so look at it from that perspective versus I'm just going to tell you what you need. And the third thing is to really think about the language and what you use, because language is so very important. So even something as simple as going into the classroom and being like, okay, guys, I've never walked in a classroom with a program for boys. And they say, okay, girls. And so why are you doing that? So something even as simple as that, making sure that you're thinking about the patriarchal language that you're utilizing, the racist language that you may be Mm. utilizing, the sexist language that you may be utilizing, be very thoughtful and conscientious about that but also making sure that you are uplifting and upholding them even when they're not in the space. Because I know they would never have said that with the girls in the space, but without them in that conversation, even adult to adult, don't have that conversation with me that way because that's not how we talk about our girls, right? There may be behavior, 
that we need to make shifts on, but we don't call them mean or having attitude problems or things of that. Those are all based in white supremacy. And so we want to make sure that we're thinking about that. But then the fourth thing, I'm sorry, is that we are working with children. And it's so important. I'm very conscious, even with the language of the word young women, and when I start to call them young women versus my middle schoolers, you never hear me call my middle schoolers young women. My high schoolers, I don't. I don't even start using that language till about 17 because we have to think about things like adultification right. and how, right? Absolutely. Right. And, right. And, right. and so Absolutely. when we utilize that language, again, we're feeding into that and we have to be so thoughtful about what our girls face every day out in the world. And our job is to support them and protect them as much as we can, but to also give them the skills in order to manage what they're going to face. Thank you, Dawn. And I think what I would share to amplify what you're saying, like that list of four may be a considerable shift for youth saving organizations, let's be honest. And as someone who's partnered with them to do research, who started out working with, you know, white-led youth serving organizations, (laughs) that's how I became a research to be perfectly honest you know what my favorite saying especially when I'm doing sort of culturally relevant training and racial socialization processing is you must get comfortable being uncomfortable right mm-hmm. yes. you must get that's my favorite saying anyone who's done a workshop with me will too. say my you too. must get yes. comfortable being uncomfortable <laughs> if you're committed to this work committing to serving the black children should I say black families the black community which means that some of that introspection is not going to feel good like some of those changes mean that you may have to go into spaces to recruit to retain to train to you know make the changes that are necessary to do a better job of you know getting to the equity point of making sure that those girls are equipped with what it is that they need. So thank you for sharing some really four concrete points. And what I would just say to anyone listening or working in a program as a parent or advocating that you must get comfortable being uncomfortable to do this work. And that may mean that you need to go in and address the leaders of the program you're sending your child to. (laughs) You know, you may need to have a conversation. I'm not necessarily saying that you... I mean, you may have to go in and kick down a door. We're not advocating that. We're saying go in and have a conversation and, you know, really just explain to them why she's a girl and not a young woman. Explains, you know, these things that they need to be cognizant and aware of. That's right. I mean, and I'm just piggybacking on what you all are saying, even challenging folks. What do you know about Black girls? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like really addressing all of these stereotypes, <sighs> this idea that they have to present a certain way that you have, to, you know, you're trying to get them to you know, conform to white femininity standards. Like we have a lot of unlearning to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. yes, and you know, a lot of it, unfortunately, I mean, in this space, and I, I do this research and now many others do as well, right? It yeah. isn't just the influence of media on the black girls themselves. It's the influence of media on the adults who serve them, right? Yes. So I have yes. a chapter in this book. Called I love that. Yes. Yeah. You know, I wrote that there's a book called Teaching Beautiful and Brilliant Black Girls. And in my chapter, I talk about that, right? These girls who talked about how teachers were responding to them based on, you know, music and video and media culture. So you don't live in a community. The teachers likely don't live in a community. About 78 to 81 percent of teachers in public schools right now are white women. Mm-hmm. They likely don't live in a community where there's a large diversity or a large population of black families that they're going to serve. And so their first interaction or encounter, it's not even a student, it's media based, particularly now with social media and streaming and, you know, the multimedia platforms that we see every day. And that becomes their reference 
for how they engage and endorse and recycle these perceptions and assumptions about Black girls that are often associated, unfortunately, with Black women, right? And so we know this. We also know that some of the research, you know, shows that Black girls tend to, you know, mature in some ways because of the racial encounters. But that That's doesn't right. mean that you expect them to be women when they are girls. That's yep. right. Yeah. Yep. And I wanted to ask a question. I mean, I know I would keep you here for much longer <laughs> because I have so many questions right. for you, but I just want to ask, like each of us, I think has a journey on why we wanted to center on black girls. You have this wonderful organization. You're doing all of this within the community in these schools. What even brought you to say, I am going to center black girls? Like, what brought you to this? <laughs> wow. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 80s during a time when D.C. was considered the murder capital and drugs had really taken over. And I grew up in the housing projects in Washington, D.C. in a pretty violent community. I grew up with a single mom and my grandmother raising me. And so I really had the opportunity to live in a space where the young people on both sides of me, the boys didn't live past 16. Mm -hmm. And the girls were pregnant, both had children by the time they were 16. But my mom made sure that any and everything that the school said or anybody in the community was like, there's a program for this. My mom was like, put her in it. Um, you know, <laughs> and she made sure that she had the humility to say, I realize that I can't give her everything, but there are these women who want to wrap their arms around her to support her. And I'm going to allow that village to happen. Yeah. And so that really helped me to see a world outside of where I lived, right? And so, because I also lived in Washington, D.C., so I also had opportunities to go to the Smithsonian. Right. And, right. and my mom made sure I was exposed to the theater and, you know, the arts. I was deeply embedded in the arts. And so I went to a high school of the arts. I went to the White House. I, you know, got to... Me, not only just meet Clinton, but he gave me a press pass so that I could, you know, be in the press room whenever I wanted to as Very a high school cool. student, right? And then went on to go to NYU and get a bachelor's and a master's degree from NYU and then teach there, right? And all of that came because of the fact that my mom made sure that she tapped into the village. She tapped into the village and she took advantage of the opportunities that were presented to me. So I grew up in that. I literally had to, this was when chalk outlines still existed. So I saw those. In order for me to go to high school, I went to a school that was so far away that I had to take two buses and the train to get there every day. And so I had to get up super early because school started at 8.30 in order to get to school. So I had to be at the bus stop at like 6.30 to get to school. And the local drug dealer would be there and he would actually say, he said, well, that girl's going somewhere. So he literally would stop doing his work, his business. He didn't do his business until I got on the bus. And he made sure I got on the bus. So when I talk about living in a place that was violent, but there was also a community, right? Who mm -hmm. said, and why did he do that? Because my grandmother fed him when he was a kid and his mom was drug addicted and he was hungry and dirty. She made sure that he always got fed and always got clean clothes. Right. And so, you know, I grew up seeing that. I watched my grandmother be the social worker in the community, right, as well as the local baker in the community and entrepreneur. And so those things really fed into who I am. And so when I graduated from school, I thought I was going to take over Broadway. And honestly, I came out and was like, I'm here because I was studying acting. And they were like, girl, you better get in line like everybody else. And auditioned. And I was like, one too many peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, what I know is young people, let me go and get a job working with young people. And I always say I acted my way into a managerial role. And from there, I just sort of took off. I fell in love with working with young people. And I really do believe that to whom much is given, much is required. And honestly, it was by the grace of God and the amazing village that I had that I got out of that community and that I was able to be successful. And so I am the girls that I serve. I am the little black girls who lived in poverty, right? That I serve. And so for me, this, like I said, this is not a job. This is what I eat, sleep and breathe every day. This is my calling in life is my job to build the village to wrap around our girls so that they can go even further than I have. But to go from that to go to being the CEO of a nonprofit is a big deal from where I came from and have multiple college degrees from one of the best universities. And so, you know, it's important that I'm able to expose other young people to those opportunities as well and break down systems so that we don't have to even deal with that anymore. Yeah, that was amazing. I love, love, love your story. And I love your bio that you shared. And I feel like what you shared is reflective in how you describe your program. And I say that because at two points we made early on, we talked about really addressing these systems when I said, what is racial justice, right? And then we talked about, okay, what are some things that you would tell you serving organizations? So even in your story, you know, one of the things we talk about is a deficit-based approach. That's a term we use in research, right? So essentially Mm -hmm. you're saying that these white organizations have often had and unfortunately continue to have, which I too have experienced, a deficit-based approach to working with Black girls, Black families, Black communities. But even in your story, right, there's the resilience and there are the cultural assets. And there's, right, you know, there's a juxtaposition, right, in terms of, you know, yes, this young man is selling drugs, but he was also protective of you. And I think about a time when I was doing practitioner work and there was a young, we asked them, who are the people in your neighborhood? That's my favorite term. Even when I research (laughs) methods, I say, who are the people in your data neighborhood? You got to give us a demographic picture. Who are the people in your neighborhood? Because that's me. Come on, Sesame Street. Shout out to Cookie Monster. Sit down, Elmo. Sit down, Elmo. But anyway, <laughs> that's my favorite show right. to this day. However, <laughs> and we were working with college students who were working with high school students in under-resourced communities. They were designated that way. They got funding for it. And so many of the college students, many of them Black, still had a deficit orientation. Like, wow, these kids, all these stats, because that's what was presented to them in their orientation. So we did a Who Are the People in Your Neighborhood? And the story was very similar to yours. And it was an aha moment for those college students who were serving as peer mentors. And the young people talked very much about living in a very drug-ridden neighborhood where there were lots of violence, but how the boys on the block would make sure she got home. Right. So she went to the neighborhood school. She didn't go to a magnet school. And then when we said, where do you get your news? This is, you know, dating the program a little bit before social media had exploded to where it is. We get it from the barbershop. We get it from the beauty shop. Right. There are some organizations who undervalue that. And sometimes living in these communities, we can undervalue that. But these young people, these are high school students who are very much able to talk about you know, they make sure I get home. I'm not necessarily saying that what they're doing is right, but I can get home. No one bothers me. No one jumps me. No one tries to hit on me because they make sure I get home. Right. And then there were the others who were to say, well, I know what's going on nationally, but also what's important in my community when I go get my hair done or where I go to the barbershop. So again, when we're thinking about, as you mentioned, your own experience because of the lineage of your grandmother and your mother, 
but also this idea of your staff and your board reflecting the community, right? So that means that's that right. that's the importance. Our language, yes. right. and you know, we may say yes. social emotional learning, but if we have someone from the neighborhood on the board, we may have to break it down to the plain English, and that is okay. If you are intent on serving communities well. Yeah. And it also gives me the sort of awareness of when we do, and all of us, when we're providing our services, what resources really look like, right? And Mm -hmm. so in thinking about that, thinking about the fact that, because I remember having this whole debate with someone where they were like, well, they're not coming to the program. And I'm like, well, how did you expect them to get to the program? You didn't offer them any kind of voucher. You're not picking them up. Well, it's just around the corner. Yeah, but they actually got to walk past two rival gang communities to walk those three blocks, right? Or, you know, when you say they're not dressing appropriately, did you tell them what the dress code was? Because everybody owns a pair of jeans. So did you tell them that it's jeans and t-shirt? They wore what they thought was the fancy thing to wear because you didn't give them something different. So, yeah, the skirt may have been short, but you didn't give another option. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we think about those things, even down to making sure that no matter where our girls come from, we have a safe car service that picks them up. And it's not Uber, like a safe car service that picks them up of mothers. We make sure that when they come to our camp. If they don't have a swimsuit, we don't let, it's a free, everything we do is free. But we think about that. Oh, this child might not be able to afford a swimsuit. So we make sure that we have those individual conversations with our parents to say, look, we have a whole family fund. If you need a towel, we can do it. And we make sure that we do blanketed things like provide them with the towels, the sunglasses, the things like that we provide them with so that everyone's on an equal footing. So we think about things from that very minute and specific thought, even when we're giving our way raffles, it's not just, I'm going to give any kind of raffle. I'm giving you a raffle to Target because I know you can go grocery shopping and get clothes, Mm -hmm. right? Or I'm going to give you something from Bath and Body Works because I know that that's where you can get something that smells good, but it's also something that can help wash your body because you need that, right? So we are very thoughtful about those things every step of the way, because that's what you got to do when you're talking about justice. That's right. That's right. We've talked a lot today about what you do, why you do. We've learned more about you professionally and personally. Thank you. We've tried to really talk about, you know, how do we unpack these terms? How do we do this work in a way that we are not hindering the success of Black girls and we're supporting those adults in their lives as well, right? So even the generative work of supporting the parents. So we must ask, our podcast is titled Raising Resilient and Joyful Black Children. We know that Black children, as you have even described in the work you do, need to be both resilient and joyful. So what kind of tips do you have for parents and caregivers who love on and are responsible for caring for Black girls Mm -hmm. and Black children to ensure that those children are both resilient and joyful? And those are for the parents who are putting their kids in all the after-school programs or the parents who just can't do it. What advice do you have for raising resilient and joyful Black children? What can we tell our parents and our providers? Yes, so I'm going to give you two tips, one that's joyful and one that's resilient. (laughs) So one around the joyful is immersive experiences. It's very important that we provide as an organization immersive experiences to our girls, and I encourage our parents to do so as well. And if you cannot find out, even if they're free experiences, but if they're not, if you can't find free ones, 
find out what programs exist that can themselves offer free experiences for your girls, because that's so important that we can't just talk about the concepts of things, but give them those experiences of putting their feet in the water, right? We took our high school girls to Disneyland and they acted like that was the best thing in the whole wide world because they had never been. I had 18 year olds who had never been to Disneyland and it's only 45 minutes away from us, right? <laughs> it's a 45 minute drive, but it's almost $100 for a ticket. So, you know, we were able to take middle school and high schools that give them opportunities to just laugh and have fun. And they will learn from that. It doesn't always have to be in your face education. It can be a fun activity like boxing, right? Which we take the girls to do. And so that would be the joyful thing, right? Let them laugh and take a moment to just hear that laughter and laugh with them. And then as far as the resilient thing, I... Recently got to go to do some classroom site visits. And I remember in one of the classrooms, we start our workshops off, we start with a question and they talk about a hot topic and we always end without empowerments, which are affirmations. And the question that day was, when was the last time you apologized? And so the girls had ran the gamut in the opinions that they had about when they apologized, either I apologize for every little thing or two, I don't apologize at all. And in the midst of them talking, they started talking about their parents and sort of things that were happening in the household that they had to apologize for, that they were accused of, that maybe they hadn't done, things of that sort, right? But they were like, for survival, I just do it. And I asked the question, when was the last time an adult apologized to you? And they all got quiet and they looked around and they were dumbfounded. And every girl in the class, it was a class of 22 girls. And they said, never, I've never had an adult do that. And I said, your mom has never apologized. You literally just told a story how your mom accused you of something, put you on punishment and learned two weeks later that you didn't do it. And she didn't apologize for that. And she was like, no, she told me, I pay the bills in this house and I put food on your table. And walked, in, walked away and said, here's your phone back and walked away, right? And I was like, okay, okay. And I'm like, your teachers haven't apologized? And they're like, no, we have to get to a point where we are thinking about the trauma that we continue to pass on to our girls. And we talked about healthy resiliency and we talked about trauma and resiliency based on trauma. But when we don't do something as simple as apologize or show the humanness of who we are and the fact that sometimes we just don't know the answer. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we make mistakes, right? Sometimes just like you're trying to develop the language yourself as a young person, I'm still trying to figure it out myself too. When we don't do that, what we're telling our girls when we say, I'm not going to apologize to you, I'm not going to acknowledge your feelings. What we're actually saying is in the world, we're talking about believe black girls, but we're literally not doing it. You know, we're talking about we need a safe space, but you literally didn't do it, right? And so what we're telling our girls is that their voices don't matter, their experiences don't matter, and that they are not worthy of anyone acknowledging that they have made a mistake or failed them in any way. And it's so human to fail sometimes. That's just a human thing. So I encourage parents to take the moment to be humble in front of your child, to be vulnerable in front of your child, and to be human in front of your child. And it's okay to apologize. It's okay when you make a mistake. It's okay to fail sometimes and go back and be like, oops, didn't get that one right today. You know, but we're going to work on it tomorrow, sis. Come on, we're going to do this together. It's okay to do that with your child, especially when they're in middle and high school, because they are watching you in a different way than they did when they were young. And young, they're mimicking it. And in middle and high school, they're learning about what they deserve from what they observe. Wow. Thank you for that. 
And so with all of this information, all of this great information, how can our listeners learn more about your organization and how to get involved? First, let me ask, how many schools are you in? We actually serve a thousand girls a year and we are in 13, yeah, we're in 13 Title I schools, middle and high schools right now, as well as one community program on Saturdays. Oof. Wow. Okay. So how can <laughs> listeners, I'm just like, what? so many questions. Right. I mean, and it's a thousand girls on a weekly basis. A thousand girls on a weekly basis. And you said yeah. it's year long, like it's mm-hmm. over the academic year. And then you have That's something in the summer. We have a smaller intensive Ooh. program in the summer. Smaller yeah. intensive program. Oh, okay. And so if I'm a parent, I am a parent, but I'm listening. I'm in the area. How can we learn more about your organization and how to get involved? Yeah, so go to our website at www.empowher.org, which is spelled E-M-P-O-W-H-E-R, all one word, dot org. Go there and you will find out how you can get your child enrolled in the program, what schools we're in, as well as if you are someone in the community or a company who just wants to make a donation or wants to partner with us because everything we do is free and we are a 501c3. So we do function based on donations, right? So there are ways to get involved. And then if you're someone who just wants to volunteer to be a mentor, we do mentoring with our girls. Every child comes in our program, gets a mentor. And so we, mm-hmm. you can imagine how many mentors we need. So if you are- 1,300. At least. At least. We do group mentoring for our girls. And then for the ones who need more support, we do individual. And that's, again, on a monthly basis. So there you can go on our website and you can also find out how to volunteer as a mentor. So they're great ways to get involved. And we also have a Black Women Nonprofit Leaders Forum coming up for nonprofit leaders to help them heal from massage noir. And so if you are a Black woman in a nonprofit space, go onto our website and register to be a part of that conference forum because it's going to be a powerful day of healing. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So thank you so much for that information and thank you for all your wisdom and for sharing your work with us and for joining us today, Dawn. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and learning more about Empower Her Institute's work. To our listeners, be sure to check out Empower Her Institute's website to learn more about their programs and how you can get involved. And we'll share this information as well, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you again. Thank you for your voice and giving voice to the young ladies that you work with. We just want to thank you again. Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children is a part of the Alive Podcast Network. The podcast was created and produced by Jacqueline Duchesne. Edited by Manny Simon of Vita Productions. Follow, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Go to whatisblack.co, that's whatisblack.co, for parenting resources and tools. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at whatisblack. That is whatisblk. We're Dr. Valerie Adams-Bass and Dr. Sherita Butler-Barnes. Thanks for listening.